Hello, listeners. Today, I'd like to just give a quick introduction to the episode before we get it started. Today's episode features an interview between James and me and Carrie Finley. Carrie is a good friend to both uh, both of us, and we'll talk about that a bit in the podcast. But she's also probably one of the most successful women in the history of finance. Carrie, in her early 30s already, was a partner at one of the largest hedge funds in the United States or in the world. For that firm, she made billions of dollars and did tremendously well and has been a really influential and important figure ever since in, uh, in finance and particularly the fixed income investing industry. So she has a lot of very interesting things to say. We'll go through her life story and background and dig into some interesting questions and, and, and controversial points. But uh, hope you'll enjoy. And here is our interview with Carrie Finley. All right, three, two, one, here we go. Recording live the second episode of the Orange Man Bad Podcast with your hosts. James Hagen, the third. And uh, I am Lucan Zorthwine. The fourth. Uh, the first, uh, soon to be, you know, the, the fourth will come, but it's just not yet. Um, Got a little ways to go. And uh, we are here with a very uh, honored we're honored at her presence, guest, um, who uh, is actually largely to thank for the formation of this this podcasting duo, uh, as she introduced both of us originally. Um, her name is Carrie Finley. Carrie, do you want to say hi? Hi. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> so Carrie has led a very interesting life, um, and uh, perhaps, I don't know if we'll do like an introduction little clip before this. We give like some bio information or something like that, and the podcasts do that sometimes. Sure. Uh, or maybe, maybe Carrie, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself? What yeah. uh, you know, what makes you who you are? So I grew up in uh, West Los Angeles. Okay. I went to uh, a great high school called Harvard Westlake. Mm -hmm. I figure skated growing up. Um, I then went to Columbia University, where I uh, switched figure skating into ski racing. Okay. Did that for a few years, and then uh, graduated. I didn't realize you actually raced for a few years. Yeah, in college. I mean, we so were right, right. You, you were the drinking team with the skiing problem. Yes, the drinking team right. with the skiing problem. <laughs> were, were you not also a ski racer? I was. James? Yeah, I was. That's how we met each other. Is it really? No. no. Just, it doesn't really. Yes, we so didn't really meet with how said. you didn't know that. You didn't <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that was part of the whole thing. <laughs> yes. You know? Yes. Um, yeah. So, but, oh, yeah, I graduated college. I uh, I got put in a role in ABS CDO research. I, Which uh, I'm sure our audio, audience uh, will all know exactly what ABS CDOs are. So between <laughs> uh, 1999 and 2002 and two or three, mm -hmm. um, these esteemed kind of money managers mm -hmm. would take a bucket of securities that had everything in them from aircraft securitization bonds, bonds backed by credit cards, subprime mortgages, subprime autos, and, you know, a handful of other different types of asset class bonds, mm -hmm. um, anything without operating risk. Mm -hmm. And they'd put them together, and because of this diversity score, mm -hmm. given the diversity of the choosing of the bonds, mm -hmm. the rating agencies, S&P, Moody's, Fitch, all those guys you saw in the movie The Big Short, mm -hmm. um, they would rate a certain amount of that AAA. Mm -hmm. And they would then sell that AAA bond to an insurance company. Mm -hmm. And the insurance company, many years later, couldn't figure out why this AAA-rated bond that they bought at 100 cents on the dollar mm -hmm. was trading somewhere between 20 cents on the dollar and 80 cents on the dollar. And so I helped them to evaluate them. So you would look at these packages that had been previously rated, and you'd give them your own carry rating 
of somewhere between garbage and, you know, sort of garbage, something like that. So I more looked at the uh, the underlying assets, the possibility of the cash flows, the possibility of how much money these assets would be worth in disposition. So you'd price them. And I'd price them yeah. and tell the insurance company whether if I were them, I would sell it, hold it, or try to buy more. And the primary reason they needed to enlist your help was because they no longer trusted the sort of accuracy of the ratings agencies at that point, right? And I think in many of the cases, the rating agency, this AAA security, mm-hmm. was now rated D. Right. And some of this happened because of uh, um, the the crashes in 9-11 and the value of airplanes declining very substantially. Interesting. So were you looking at a lot of aircraft sort of backed? Uh, Back then, yeah. Interesting. It was both double ETCs and uh, mm-hmm. and aircraft leasing securitizations. Interesting. And, and were you primarily just appraising the value of these aircraft at the time? Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Like there were, and there were two different appraisals. One is what somebody would pay for it. Right. Two is what somebody Discounted would lease for least, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. three was if you actually like took the plane apart, it was called the part out cost, and uh, you could sell the different pieces of metal to different buyers uh, right. who right. wanted that asset. And so what, what was the specific process that, you know, whether it's a decision process or series of sort of jobs that you took that led you into this specific uh, area of the financial industry? Oh, I mean, I was 22 years old and they say, this group wants you, you just go. Hmm. And I why mean, did that group why they want you? you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I was mathematically oriented. Mm-hmm. And uh, the interest rate derivatives group. And, and group, when you say this group wants you, you had taken a job somewhere and were just kind of being placed, and you'd interviewed yeah. with a bunch of groups, mm-hmm. and the group that sort of liked you the most and that you also liked as well, you went with them, this kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So I had accepted a job at Morgan Stanley, mm-hmm. um, and there were groups in corporate credit, in foreign exchange, in uh, U.S. government debt in, uh, they called securitized products, the group I was in, mm-hmm. where it was debt, where I always say d- the debt doesn't have operating risk. Mm-hmm. So there's not a CEO making a decision. Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of different decisions made by either consumers or, uh, in this case, aircraft lessers or owners. Mm-hmm. And it's not the decision of a CEO running a business, which mm-hmm. that would have operating risk. Mm-hmm. This is asset-based risk. Mm-hmm. And so you have the risk of the value of the asset and the payments on the assets. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting way to categorize the, the sort of asset class. I guess you can't really securitize anything other than asset-backed, sort of. However I mean, you'd like to loosely can, define receivables. You, know, <laughs> you can like you can securitize a royalty stream that has no like defined payments, like pharmaceutical royalties have been securitized, and nobody knows how much that drug's going to sell. No one knows if it'll sell. That's true. I still think of that as... as sort of not really operationally relevant though, right? Well, but that is a little bit more, right? Because you have the CEO of the pharmaceutical company making decisions about this drug and then you're taking the risk on the on the sales of the drug. Sure. So sure. that one definitely has more operating risk in theory. But yes. you're making a bet more on the drug and less on the CEO because his other decisions don't affect the, you know, other decisions about other drugs or how he runs business other than that. Right. Affects that now. And so was this, when you were doing this uh, evaluation of these uh, mortgage packages and all these kinds of things, mm-hmm. uh, was this pre or post uh, housing crisis and, you know, the, the So great... this was pre-crisis. Okay. Um, these were bonds. So the CDO market went away after uh, the September 11th attacks because mm-hmm. aircraft 
decline in value. In addition, there was a crisis in overlending in auto securitizations, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a company, I think, if I remember correctly, called Metris that was a credit card subprime company that went out of business. And mm -hmm. so that was a lot of the reasons that these 1999 to 2003 CDOs started to go bad. Mm -hmm. So CDOs went away for a few years. And everyone always said they'll be back. Mm -hmm. and what percentage of the market sorry, what percentage of the market were sort of, you know, auto and and you know aircraft let's say um and the total city yeah. well no, no they were all at the time mm -hmm. you got s scored better a better rating on more of the bond mm -hmm. if you had more diversity in the mm -hmm. cdo mm -hmm. so one cdo would have aircraft sure mortgages credit cards and just because the mortgage market is so much bigger than the other markets because that size of a house is so much bigger than the size of an mm -hmm. auto loan mm -hmm. there was heavy mortgage back security uh Weightings to these to the to the CDOs, mm -hmm. the aircraft market obviously isn't as big as the mortgage market, right. and so you had a lot of you had a lot of housing risk, but you also had some auto risk, some credit card risk, and a lot of times they went to zero um, because it was subordinated bonds in the original structure going going into the ABS CDO, and they were probably originally rated triple B, so maybe the fifth or sixth bond in seniority in the credit card structure or the auto structure, and so. You know, a small change in losses can be a huge change to a levered triple B bond. Right. And so a lot of times they would go from, you know, worth 100 cents on the dollar to worth zero cents on the right. dollar very, very quickly. Got it. Um, so, but I, I guess my, my broader question was within these CDOs, what yeah. percentage were like, you know, mortgages versus aircraft? Versus, I don't remember. You know, um, but it was, it was primarily those two asset classes that brought down the category, I guess. Well, no, it was auto, and, credit and cards, aircraft. aircraft and there was some like Long Beach housing mortgage bonds that also I remember going pretty bad. Got it. Got it. Really? So it wasn't primarily housing going bad that brought this about? No. That's not discussed in the narrative very often. Well, well this, this, is pre, was this is pre, pre crisis. crisis. I see. Pre crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Got then it. ABS, everyone said ABS CDOs are dead. Got it. You're going to be out of a job. Got it. ABS CDO research won't exist. Hmm. And well, then they Little came back. They knew. Yeah. And then solely well, packaged as mortgages. Almost, yes. Okay. Because mortgages weren't the reason the first group of CDOs went went bust, hmm. and so diversity, which was what we, you know, had this score that helped them get a rating on more bonds, was mm -hmm. actually I think taken out of uh, of the scoring in the next round, if I remember correctly. Even though the logic was actually probably sound that the greater diversity of mm -hmm. different classes of of loans is. Uh, gives you less risk. Yep. Uh, they just, if you selectively pick and choose the one that happened to be not as risky in the past, mm -hmm. you're not going to get actually a less risky asset. Right. And on top yeah. of it, you had some money manager, you yeah. know, let's just say like a, a good money manager, I don't want to call anyone out, but mm. they would choose the bonds that went into these CDOs and they were known as the CDO manager mm. and they could sell bonds and replace bonds. But what would happen is that when things would start to go bad, they'd go bad quickly, mm. and then the triggers would trip, and then they wouldn't be allowed to make those replacements. And so when things started to go bad, they would go exponentially bad because they couldn't do anything to save it. Mm. And so these same managers showed up in 2005, 6, and 7 and started creating these basically subprime mortgage only mm. ABS CDOs. And maybe mm. they had a bond or two that was different, but that really is what brought down, call it, brought the housing crisis to its peak in 2008. Mm. But the stuff that I was researching was already created 2003 and earlier vintage uh, vintage CDOs. Mm -hmm. And so uh, how did you progress in your uh, career after that? Well, I went to a hedge fund called DB's Warren. Um, I worked for two of the best guys on earth. And they really taught me about asset-based lending. 
And um, so these one are of them, the, the two founders of DB Torrent? Or, no, they uh, ran the assets group. Got it. Um, and one of them was in charge of securities and mm -hmm. one of them was in charge of uh, joint ventures. Mm -hmm. And so as an associate for them, mm -hmm. I looked at residential real estate, consumer lending, and these things called SIVs, uh, which stand for, it's like an SPV that banks held for their uh, commercial paper conduit. SPV being a special purpose vehicle. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yep. I don't. I, SIV might have been or special investment vehicle, sort of but I don't remember. Chief, chief lessons that you learned, sort of during those years, um, and and sort of, yeah. What what did you glean from those years with respect to your understanding of, of sort of asset based lending? I mean, the general? most important thing I learned was be know who your partners are and be really careful with them and be really you know only work with people you trust, because you know DBs Warren very famously had some issues, and uh, what we, sort of issues? You know, there, it was accused that the founder, Dan Zwern, bought a jet with uh, investor capital. Mm -hmm. And um, the story I read on Bloomberg, which is the, story, the only story I know, mm -hmm. was that it did happen, but it was a error. He paid it back three days later. Mm -hmm. It's really unclear what happened, but the entire firm's accounting and policies were put into question. Mm -hmm. The firm went under, I think, a two-year audit. Found There was no, no material changes found, mm -hmm. but the... Just the Material cause. changes means just nothing. They didn't find that they were doing anything that needed to be changed. Correct. Like yes. the asset values, I don't think, if I if I remember correctly, were actually ever questioned or mm. at the end were not questioned. The auditor didn't, you know, need to materially restate and restate the audited financials. Mm. And so it was just a lesson in, you know, errors. Mm. And we think it was an error. Dan Zwern was never, uh, was never charged with anything. And so... Mm -hmm. But what I noticed was that when we started to have a lot of bad headlines about the firm, when people were questioning us, mm. our partners triggered buy-sell agreements within our lending facilities that put us in, uh, in some precarious positions because we trusted our partners, we thought they were our friends, and then when they felt like they could take advantage of us, we felt like they did. Mm. In a, a buy-sell agreement, let's just talk about that really quick. So. Um, the reason why that's why that's difficult and destructive in, in a lot of cases is, let's say Carrie and I were partners mm -hmm. in a company, mm -hmm. and um, you keep everybody honest. Some people, I guess, call it the, the Chinese fire drill, if mm -hmm. you will, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I can give Carrie an offer, right, to buy her shares, let's say, mm -hmm. but she can turn around and buy my shares for the offer. So I, I'm incentivized not to lowball her, essentially, yeah. right? Yeah. So I'm incentivized to give her the fair price immediately. Yeah. It's a very common practice yeah. in partnerships in yeah. general. It's the only way that I know of, at least, that you can yeah. ensure that people get fair value in a illiquid market such as it's true. founders buying each other's shares. I guess the only problem is if, if, if there's a tremendous asymmetry in how well capitalized the partners are, right? That's totally. the only time when it when it can really hurt. Exactly Which is often the case. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. But it's hard to, to plan around that kind of case. Yeah. But that's exactly what happened is mm. they knew we couldn't buy. Mm. They knew we weren't taking in new capital. Mm. And so when they triggered a buy-sell we basically had to sell. Yeah. And to me, that was the biggest lesson. I mean, the other lesson was, was would, would, would you say that like it was specific partners you had, like specific, you know, people you were working with that you couldn't trust that would do this and other people were like nice guys and they wouldn't do yes. what might have been in their economic interest to do? Yeah. Um, because they, but it was in their economic interest, right? Because yeah. you can take long, the short term. term interest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can take the short term approach to your economic interest and you can take the long term approach. And, yeah. You know, even if DB's Warren was no longer around, mm. my two bosses were around, I'm around, 
the guy who sat next to me works at another fund out here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they remember. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. And so you're much more careful. You know, I might have the best deal on earth. Mm. And I did a really interesting deal at Third Point. And, you know, one of those, one of the firms who treated us poorly at Zwern was, you know, call it foisted on me as a mm. partner of, uh, of this deal I was working on. And I was really scared. Mm. And I didn't want to put you know, put third point in that risk. And mm. it was something that uh, yeah, I really had to think twice about and think twice about continuing the transaction when mm. I knew that that partner had hurt my former firm. Yeah. This actually makes me think of a fun, controversial point that we can dig into a little bit here. Uh, something that I've put a lot of thought into given my experience working in China for a number of years, which is that the whole notion of like so much of business and transactions uh, relies on or benefits greatly from at least this notion of like long-term trust, long-term shared interest and ability to punish bad actors who might, you know, take a short-term cheat. Maybe it's not a cheat, but it's just a bad faith action uh, in order to quickly profit. But that, you know, in a, in a market where everybody's kind of market monitoring each other and talking to each other and paying attention to each other, uh, you you end up with, anyway, they can be punished in a world that's more like that, and they're not punished in a world where everyone's interchangeable and everyone's moving in and out of the market and the market is gigantic or mm-hmm. people are more flexible. Um, one of the things that I think people notice about China and... and uh, also just like an international business in general. I remember my grandfather uh, absolutely hated, he was uh, a banker himself and he hated doing business with the Japanese specifically because he felt that you never had this uh, like long-term good faith trust that he'd be used to having with his partners in America. And probably a big part of that is just like any foreign partner or someone sufficiently distant from you knows that there's not that much recourse that like they're not going to be punished in the same way or as much if they take a short-term gain and it's more incentivized for that. Um, but also very broadly in China, it's, 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 it's definitely, uh, you know, the different way that business is done in China, the different standards around these sorts of things, the different types of trust networks that exist, um, make it very difficult for a lot of there are many barriers to, to Western firms doing business in China, but one of them is certainly this notion of like, you never know if you can trust yeah. who and what and when over yeah. there. Uh, not necessarily because they don't have the same social capital, let's say, built up in their business world, but it's very different. It looks very different and it doesn't really translate cross-culturally, cross-border, whatever else. It's also probably like it's highly xenophobic, right? Um, as, as a country, just you know. Yeah, China's China's super xenophobic, it, and 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 so to, to take this into yeah. a more controversial angle, one of the things that you might observe about Western countries and marketplaces in general is you tend to see a lot more reliance on this sort of business trust, good faith action in the U.S. in Europe to a large extent than you do in a lot of other countries. And there's a lot of efficiency that I think has been gained. And maybe you can tie that into like the history of sort of like Protestant nations and the ways that they policed other actors and all this kind of stuff. Um, but certainly, you know, in my conversations with Chinese people, they don't trust each other either very much in business. It's a different kind of attitude. Um, so anyway, just to... Well, I think that that's largely... 
well, we, we can get to maybe why that might be the case, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, so I do a lot of business in Latin America, for instance. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a substantial presence mm-hmm. in network in any one of these countries, mm-hmm. um, you're very likely to be defrauded, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And so, like, our, our primary... And, and we're not just talking about a legal short-term action where somebody's doing, like, you know, pushing leverage that they have in a buy-sell agreement. We're talking about defrauded, which yeah. is a whole different level of... Yeah. of Short-term versus long-term. And, yeah. Uh, uh, and in Latin America, it, it's very much relationship-driven, right? And so people are incentivized to participate in this sort of reciprocal altruism, if you will, <laughs> right? Um, and in and long-term business relationships mm. insofar as they, they're concerned about being punished, right? Mm. And uh, especially in places like Mexico, mm. because everything is so relationship-driven, there are so few people who control all of the assets, mm. that if you know those people really well... Mm. <laughs> Um, they are concerned about reputational damage, right? And mm. so you have to establish a presence and a network mm. prior to being able to do business. And you have to scale your assets and scale those relationships really quickly mm. in order to protect yourself, mm. primarily because law and order, it's just, it's, it's not robust enough okay. to well, affect that. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you think that that's it, though? Or I actually, I would question whether that's the case. That would be the standard narrative, is mm-hmm. that, you know, these places don't have sufficient rule of law, which yes. is certainly true. Though we can go into why they don't have sufficient rule of law and the reasons behind that and general observations that one has about what places tend to have rule of law or have Mm -hmm. an easy time establishing it and which ones tend to have a hard time establishing it. Um, But I would also argue that there's kind of a meta that establishes. Mm -hmm. uh, And by meta, I mean like, you know, so for example, in any like online game, competitive game, uh, people always talk about what the meta is, which is like given the current state of, you know, which characters are stronger, or which strategies are good or whatever else, what general approach everybody uh, adheres to, because that tends to be what people think is optimal, given that general environment. Mm-hmm. Because it's very rare that like a given strategy is always optimal in every environment. And it sort of depends on like what the general psychology of the group of people is and all this kind of stuff. But but if it's it, not contextually imposed, is your point, right? Yeah, well, it, 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 it uh, I think, you know, it's quite clear that you can look at just different geographic regions of the world and see different metas emerge. Mm-hmm. And those metas sometimes are consistent across countries in a given area. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they seem to be very malleable to what system of government's in place or how long that government's to, mm-hmm. been in place. Very often, I'd argue they're what people would call like culturally informed. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that the meta of Western nations tends to be not only do you not really need to establish a super strong business network of friends here to not be defrauded. Yeah. Like you can be a foreigner and come to America and do business and have a relatively low chance of being defrauded, I might think. Um, depends on what industry you're engaging with, mm-hmm. who you're engaging with in said mm-hmm. industry. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, 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 uh, I feel, I've felt for a long time, like there's this strong competitive advantage that goes well beyond any notion of like xenophilia or phobia Mm -hmm. or rule of law even, Mm -hmm. which is just like the meta that has managed to exist Mm -hmm. for virtually all people who come to the U S by the Mm -hmm. way, not just the people or, or to Europe, et cetera, Mm -hmm. but there's like enough of a weight of a meta Mm -hmm that encourages this very long-term oriented pro uh, good faith action Mm -hmm. uh, business decisions um, 
I don't know. Well, you see that in like the venture community, right? Mm-hmm. Worldwide, which is I think just a shared sort of well philosophy well, on how on on the best ways uh, to sort of optimize your outcomes in life, right? Mm. And which which are which are consistent with the meta that you're describing, right? So like, what do you what do you mean if, by that? So if you go to like, well, let's talk about Mexico again, right? Yeah. It is uh, the it's virtually it's very unlikely you're going to get defrauded, right? Yeah. By startups. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and even though they're sort of uh, at a at a sort uh, even though it's fairly easy for them to do so, right? Yeah. Maybe even easier. Um, given sort of the loose capital though, though the available. Kind, the kind of people who are starting startups in yes. Mexico, I imagine, resemble a certain very distinct archetype of person. Uh, I might even imagine a lot of them get educated in America. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. And that's sort of my point, right? Yeah. So you can, di- like, I, I think it is certainly uh, culturally dependent, right? Yeah. Um, and and um so I think you can sort of isolate the, the the sort of cultural context there, right? Carrie, you look like you're getting a little uncomfortable here, or the no, <laughs> I'm good. I mean, it's the same thing. You remember when we like talked about, you know, Luke and I have a mutual friend, and you know, we were talking about like treating people outside your circle versus inside your circle differently. Mm-hmm. And so, if you treat someone poorly inside your circle, like there are social consequences for that. Mm-hmm. If you treat someone poorly outside your circle, no one will probably ever know, and so there's probably no social consequences. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing as short-term versus long-term in business or, you know, defrauding people. And yeah, startups can't defraud people because nobody will ever work with them again and they never get past the stage of a startup. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you really you really have to have a lot I think at stake to even get to the mental place of where you could even think about that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone ever should do that, but it's one of these things where the only time I could imagine someone wanting to defraud someone is if they had a lot on the line and they thought they were going to lose it if they didn't. And like, but for starters, let, let, let's that assume couldn't even happen. Just, just like there's a price for everything. Yeah. There's also a defrauding, you know, qualifier that people would accept for everything. If, you know, your entire family was going to be burned alive in a, you know, in a, in a fire, or you could defraud someone. Eh, maybe you defraud someone a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like there's always, there's always some yeah. threshold. And also it's like, there's a difference between your whole family is going to be burned alive in a fire. You're going to defraud someone and you will get caught for it and go to jail for the rest of your life, or you'll have no consequence. And all these like, well, it's the same thing. I don't know if you remember um, when hurricane Katrina happened, mm. but you know, these people were smashing windows of these small stores. Mm. And there's such a difference between smashing a window to take electronics or smashing a, win- a window to take food mm. because your family is starving and floating. Certainly and, in terms of public perception, yeah. But also in terms of, like, you know... No, but I could, I could take electronics and then barter them for food, you know, so... So if that's what you're doing, I then, you know, I then judge less. But I could see if your family's starving and this store is closed and the owners are gone and you don't have any money on you or whatever it is, or you don't have money in general mm-hmm. and your family is starving and the city is shut down and there's no public services. That's, you know, that's an option that is probably your only option for your family not to starve. Yeah. I, 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 we, I, I, I would view that a little bit differently, but I think we, I think we digress though. Right. Yeah. I, I think like to, to frame this in game theoretic, you know, sort of, you know, to, to reduce it to a game theoretic framework, right? Yeah. I think tit for tat, right? Yeah. Is 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 trained and culturally ingrained in, in Western countries, right? So you don't defect, you cooperate, 
until somebody else defects and then you defect. It is it is the mo it is the optimal strategy well, for this, long many iterative this, this is actually, interactions. This is actually a really interesting question because I don't know if that's actually what the West does. I don't know if the West is a tit for tat operator any because because tit for tat and so just for for the audience's reference in game theory, looking at the notion of like what's the right way to cooperate versus versus uh uh, what's the word? Uh, okay, specific case is Prisoner's Dilemma game. Uh, Prisoner's Dilemma game approximates a lot of real-world circumstances where you basically either defect against your comrade and rat him out, or you cooperate with your comrade and you guys both do better off, but if he defects against you when you cooperate with him, you get screwed over. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's mm -hmm. an estimation of the same kind of situation, which is do you take mm -hmm. advantage of the person with you uh, to make more money in the short term, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And in every study of this, the optimal strategy for over this... Infinite over infinite iterations. Infinite iterations, yeah. which is a very specific caveat, yep. is tit for tat, which means basically no more than one punishment per wrongdoing uh, that the person does. And then you always, have to, you always have to defect after that point as well. So, so meaning that you cooperate... Well, it depends on what strategy the opponent is using. Uh, in in if both people right. are using tit for tat, no one actually defects because tit for tat Correct. defaults with cooperating at first. If your opponent's using a non tit for tat strategy, yeah, the second depending on defect, what he you does, you have to defect in perpetuity. You have to defect. Well, no, 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 not in perpetuity. You only defect once for each. Oh, actually, you're that right. I'm do. sorry. You're correct. Yeah. Yes. and and strategies indeed that are like tit for two tats, where you yes. like punish them twice for every yes, time yes, that yes, they yes. do something bad, actually work less well. Yes, uh, they're less optimal. The real world's a lot messier than that, uh, and in in my general observations, but the original conjecture, though, yeah. right, is you were saying why is it that you're concerned about getting defrauded yeah. in Mexico? Yeah. Why is it that in China, um, I'm you know people are generally much more concerned with doing business there because I then, I, I, I would bill it up to long versus short term optimization in general, mm -hmm. and which is in the reasoning behind behind this observation in, in the or, or what, what? I mean, I, I, to go to go to a, a really, I would say, interesting place, but one that makes people very uncomfortable, is I think that you can categorize a lot of places in the world by a predominantly short-term oriented uh, meta, let's say, versus a long-term oriented meta. Mm -hmm. In general, in any given place, if people have less resources, they opt for shorter-term uh oriented strategies, mm -hmm. which is why, you know, payday loan businesses exist and all kinds of things that seem to make people really poorly off uh, in the long term, but benefit them in the short term. Um, but I actually would argue that there's the causal arrow is is unclear about are those, you know, to what degree is a given person uh, impoverished and thus adopts a lot of short term strategies versus mm -hmm. They adopt a lot of short-term strategies and thus are or remain impoverished. Mm -hmm. uh, furthermore, there's a lot of literature on the whole notion of differing environments that people evolved in and different circumstances mm -hmm. that people uh, uh, had to adapt to. Um, there's a thing called the marshmallow test where you can... It's, it's a very well-replicated study in psychology where... You can see basically for young kids whether if you give them one marshmallow and say, hey, I'll give you two marshmallows if you don't eat this one for 10 minutes, 
Uh, you see whether they can with, withhold their urge to eat the marshmallow or whether they uh, just eat it immediately or sometime before the 10 minutes expire. That marshmallow test is extremely predictive of lifetime outcomes for those kids, right. of income, of all kinds of things. That would seem to point very strongly at not the fact that the kids have developed a, you know, I have a tight wallet and thus I have to enact a short-term strategy approach, but instead they enact a, I have a uh, general feeling that I should go for short-term strategies mm -hmm. uh, over long ones, and that tends to unsurprisingly lead to outcomes that don't work as well in the long run. Mm -hmm. um, I, I could go at, at, at length into this kind of thing, but, but uh, you know, Carrie's smiling here. Maybe she has some thoughts. No, I mean, you know, I told you my answer to the marshmallow test was, mm -hmm. was the number of ones versus a five that, uh, that my parents used to put up in their hands at Passover. So you're, you're, Carrie's parents specifically administered a marshmallow test to her and her friends, right? My cousins. Or, or your cousins. Yeah, yeah. And on it the was regular. all about, well, no, Passover. <laughs> okay. So in the Jewish tradition, there's this like thing called finding the afikoman. Yeah. And during the middle of the Seder, all the kids under a certain age get to go look for the piece of matzah in a nice little container. Yeah. And when you'd find it, you would get money. And so there were, a, you know, a bunch of afikomans, a bunch of kids. Yeah. And most kids found them, and they'd give you the option between a five and three ones. Mm -hmm. And most of the kids under a certain age took the three ones. Mm -hmm. I, of course, uh, took the five. And it was... Though, though I might argue that that's not necessarily like a, a short versus long-term preference that's thing. That's rather smarter than the kids. Well, the kids. well or specifically, <laughs> they're, they're incapable of abstract thought at that age, of like abstractly understanding the difference in value. Yeah, that's um, fair. But but uh, but I actually would predict that you'd have a correlation with that abstract thought difference and marshmallow test yeah. performance, as you also see a difference, a correlation in marshmallow test score and IQ. Uh, that is one of the very strong uh, predictors of marshmallow test score and in mm -hmm. general short-term versus long-term behavior. Yeah. Uh, and in some respects, a lot of what IQ is actually... I don't know if I'd say it's measuring for, but it's it's it tends it certainly tends to correlate a lot with it. Is this like notion of executive function and overriding the, you know, your more base impulses? Yeah, yeah. more base impulses, etc. Um, which generally tend to be more short term oriented. Yep. Um, but then you also have a lot of aberrations to that to that sort of theory, right? I mean. I'm sure that Bernie Madoff had a very high IQ, right? Oh, for um, sure. <laughs> and again, this is this is one of those things that every single time it needs to be said that not everything in in, in social sciences or psychology or anything correlations never get close to one. <laughs> they yeah. they if you get a point four correlation, that's phenomenal. Yes. Which is incidentally what like IQ tends to get, and almost nothing else gets a correlation that high in its predictive power of of whatever whatever life outcome, for example, you're trying to look for. Um, but, uh, but, but uh, I, I, I'm sorry for, for, we're, we're, we're digressing. We're digressing a little bit, but there's one, I think, important point to make here as we go off into this whole like speculation on different people evolving to have different time preferences. And this would branch into like R, K, R and K selection theory about fast and slow life histories and, uh, differences in environments that would uh, this evolutionary biology idea that more chaotic environments that are unpredictable 
make it more rational to evolve toward having short-term uh, life strategies, harsh environments that are nonetheless more predictable, uh, where you can actually plan and do things to mitigate the chances that you or your offspring will die, tend to select for uh, longer-term preferences, you know, mm -hmm. people acting like squirrels and burying their nuts instead of eating them right away, this kind of thing. Um, that aside, one of the reasons I think it's interesting and important to, to bring up this stuff, because it does make a lot of people uncomfortable, because immediately their minds jump to, are you saying things about certain populations of people that you shouldn't be saying or that, you know, is a bad thing to say, uh, is that in practice, like, what we the approach that we want to try and come at with this podcast and and with our sort of notion of questioning unorthodox uh, or questioning orthodox, I should say, ideas with unorthodox ones or ones that are, are taboo in whichever way is you're trying to make a model that's predictive. Uh, you're trying to, whether you want a story to be true or not, or whether there are multiple explanations that are reasonable or not, when you're talking about what a truth claim is or what something that's interesting or useful to dis discuss is, you're trying to say, does this story that I tell create a model that's either simpler and as predictive or more predictive than whatever other model we have? Sure. Um, and those claims tend to be falsifiable, mm -hmm. they tend to be testable, and they tend to be relevant and interesting. And I think, you know, it's our strong belief that you can do a lot of good no matter what your objective is when you understand the world better and when you have models that are more predictive. Uh, and indeed, there are so many things that we, that are, you know, if you looked at them from a different frame of mind, it would be horrible, you know, abominations that this could ever be the truth, but they just are true and everyone knows they're true, so nobody cares about them. Well, did you, did you read the, uh, or sorry, listen to the Jordan Peterson like clip about truth that I sent you the other day. I did. I did listen to that. Yeah, Jordan's a big. He's a big truth advocate. No, uh, and he basically said what we were talking about the night before, which mm -hmm. was that it's painful. Mm -hmm. You don't often want to know the truth. Mm -hmm. Your opinion and your like, uh, call it relationship with the truth. Yeah, is not something you really want to think about. And so when you start to break down all the lies that we tell ourselves and tell other people on a daily basis. Yeah. Most of the time, accidentally. Mm when you start to break that down and like really think about only telling the truth, mm. it, it can be really painful, really hurtful, really sad and kind of, well, it's also, alarming. it's also untenable socially. There's, there've been people who've tried to run their own like self life experiments of never lying to anyone. For example, it goes really badly. Well, I, think, <laughs> I think part of the, part of the reason why it's uncomfortable what you're talking about right now, right? Yeah. Is that there's, there's either something that's sort of uh, maybe, that there are certain things that are genetically immutable, let's yes, say. Yes. And then there are certain things that might be culturally at least, uh, you know, um, at, at least on the surface immutable, right? Well, because well, they're, they're deeply ingrained. There are certain really bad uh, sort of pernicious um, ideas that have been somewhat viral in certain cultures yeah. that have kept those cultures back. Yeah. And amongst certain populations, there yeah. might be certain genetic... Uh, differences between populations, which I, which might sound controversial. No, no, no. they're not. Okay. Might be. There obviously are. Yep. You can. They are manifest. Yes. The fact now, that the populations don't look exactly the same on average. Yes. Means that there is a mean average difference. Right. Unless how you look is entirely environmentally then, influenced, then, which it's obviously not. 
And then why that's painful is because yeah. we like to think that we're in control of our own destiny. Everybody can be equal in every single way. And that is likely not the case. Yeah. Well, we have we have a lot of memes around this stuff. We have a lot of ideas that are, are effective, useful approximations yeah. in certain regards. Like, you know, I think we, we talked about last time the mm -hmm. quote unquote all men are created equal mm -hmm. uh, notion that's stated as being self-evident, which anything that's stated as self-evident is usually not true, um, right. that's embedded in the U.S. Constitution or Declaration of Independence or wherever it is. Right. Uh, and uh, it's a good it's a human useful instinct, approximation for, well, it's a good approximation for uh, a lot of things. It's useful enough in a lot of ways. It encourages uh, a lot of pro-social behaviors mm -hmm. if you use it as your rubric. It also matches with democracy and the necessity of like if democracy is the mode that the forces that shape mm -hmm. our world have have said is the winner right now eh, this is this is it's it's a very effective meme for justifying yeah. democracy as being a uh a more permanent maybe thing than it is there than it will be probably some some components of that which are really which are not only useful but which might be a moral imperative that we should all share right mm -hmm. which is that people probably or absolutely, I think, should have the same sort of humanity and be treated with the same humanity. It's not okay uh, to... I'd actually take issue with that statement as well. <laughs> but it, it's no more right... They're, 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 when we say that no life is, is less valuable, and, and, the, and maybe, it may be my intuition for, I, I, for I, that. I, I take issues with all these things, because these are usually... But, but the reason that, that that might be, or that's, I, I think, very important, is because nobody chooses which genetic code they're wired with. Nobody Absolutely. chooses any of these things, and depending on what is sort of well, uh, well, in vogue at I got, the time... I got, I got news for you, dude. Free yeah. choice doesn't exist. Free will doesn't exist. Nobody chooses anything ever. That's Well, <laughs> I, I, by the way, I totally agree with that. Yeah. And uh, and I think any, anybody and, who thinks and, about it enough has to agree with that. Yeah. But, but given that, why is what people choose actually an important distinction? Because choice well, is an illusion. Yeah, okay, you're right. You know? Uh, it, 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 it's all this... I mean, there are things, there are different ways to define choice. And you could say, is a choice of James's something that I could convince him to, like, think otherwise? Well, it's not a or, choice because there's an because, inevitability in the causal because, chain. But yeah, yes. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> it's still not a choice. Yes. We have, you know, sometimes it's useful to use this idea of choice to kind of get it a sort of pattern that we talk about right. sometimes. But along which dimension can you actually impute superiority but, but, to anybody else, right? I, I, well, I mean, well, any dimension. Well, he would well, start with IQ. You, well, well I, you IQ, in, IQ is one among many, though. It, no matter what right I now, care about, I can rank order people. I may be wrong in my rank ordering, but a rank ordering exists. Yeah. Nobody is the same in virtually anything. To be exactly the same with all the crazy, minute variants that exist in every human behavior is, is probably impossible. Maybe you'll find, like, two people in a billion who have the exact same stat on any given thing if you measure it precisely enough. Mm -hmm. Um, but 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 it's it's largely path dependent on why certain sort of characteristics might matter more right now than before, right? It's, it's arbitrary, right? IQ is important now because we like computers and stuff. Yeah, totally. And, and well, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, but I would argue from a genetic argument, it's actually not only unimportant; it's harmful because higher yeah. IQ people have fewer kids. Right. So it's actually like a highly dysgenic yes. trait. So depending on your frame of reference, you know, having high IQ might be useful for making money, and it might be unuseful for existing in the yes. future or having your genes exist in the future. Um, it depends on what you care about.
But this whole notion that everybody has like a totally equal worth is ridiculous on its face because there's no, there's, you, you, on the you, presumption of well, worth. Well, 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 yeah. what's your definition of worth? Like yeah. how much I should care about them. Yeah. But, but that makes no sense because right. obviously you should care about the doctor who's going to save a hundred kids about to die more than the random dude who's about to kill himself anyway, because he feels like it yeah. and is going to live for three more seconds. You know, there's there's different worth there. Yeah. Even if all your it's a it's an infinite regression. Yeah. That like if you care about the kids' worth, then you gotta care about the guy's worth that equals all those kids sure. put together. And how do you time adjust that? And it's it's I mean, th- there's an industry that exists to try and put dollar values on people's lives. It's grossly uh rough around the edges, but it you know, you can certainly do a better approximation than everybody is worth the same amount of money. Sure. Wait, sorry, are you talking about the life insurance industry? Life insurance is is one. They're also different categories and in lawsuits and all kinds of stuff like this. And people are, you know, X number of people are harmed or they're injured and they can't work for this part of their life and what's owed to them. And it depends on usually there's a calculation done based on their income, uh, expected income in their lifetime. That's sort of their total worth, which is obviously like not far from a perfect measure of it. But it's certainly better than saying, well, their worth is exactly the same as the mean human worth on Earth. Uh, in dollars, which is probably about 50 cents. To get, um, to get back, though, to our guest, Gary. Yes, yes. Um, and I think it, it parlays nicely into this question. Are there any investments that are, are morally unacceptable or morally reprehensible to you? Is there, are there any Yeah, cl- to cause harm. Yes, that, that you would not invest in because of... Yes. Okay, let's talk about those. If they cause harm. Okay so, okay, so so this is great that we can dig into this. Yeah. So you don't like to invest in things that cause harm. Correct. How do you define cause and harm? I mean, it's not a like rough. It's a very like in my mind what I think causes harm. Okay. Or specifically, so, sir, talk sir, about something sir, right sir, now. Payday lending. Payday Pay, lending. Okay. You would not and in so you would not invest in a payday lender or lend to a payday lender or be exposed to that asset class because okay. you think that it is my them. opinion. That's very yes. unlibertarian of you. Now, why is payday lending in your mind so pernicious? Because what the data would show you is that it gets people on a payday lending spiral. And they're taking out debt they can never pay back. They're never going to have the income uh, raises, income growth mm-hmm. to ever pay it back. And mm-hmm. so you're putting someone on a debt spiral where every day they're getting poorer because they are owing the payday lender more money. Mm-hmm. So, so wait, two questions because I want to. Yeah. So would this be something that you think should be illegal or that you would just choose not to invest in? No, I absolutely think that there's you know capital needs and people have capital needs and as people have those capital needs, lenders will emerge, and that's great for them to be matched up in a way where a payday lender is lending to someone. So you don't actually don't think it's bad that these things exist? You think I it's don't want to be exist. involved. No, I think it serves a need. Yes. I don't... There's certainly demand for it. There's Nobody demand would for debate it. that, mm-hmm. yes. I don't want to be a part of it. Because okay. I think it's detrimental. I would like to find a solution mm-hmm. to help people get off the payday lending spiral. But if you thought it was detrimental, don't you think... It should be illegal? No. Okay. So why not? Because I believe in free markets. Why? Because I believe that, you know, everyone is entitled to kind of make their own financial decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe in most cases that the borrower is being hoodwinked into Mm -hmm. taking out a loan. So so would you say that you think that, for example, it might be good to outlaw payday loans, but it would be kind of a slippery slope to outlawing other kinds of loans that are... Where do you draw the line? See, that's the problem. That's where it comes to is like, 
I'm not a line drawer. Yeah. Um, I well, think you have drawn a line in terms of me. your investments you'll make. But for me. Yes. Yes. Um, I don't want to harm people. And yeah. I don't think that, you know, I don't like. Would you say through. that that line might be malleable over time as well? Or like in a certain period of affluence or lack thereof, a payday loan might be more or less. So I think there are harmful. probably payday loans yeah. that do good. But I don't think I have enough information and knowledge mm -hmm. to know which ones are and which ones aren't. So there's, you know, the person who really has a one-time bad situation, mm -hmm. and this gets them through, and mm -hmm. that I believe shouldn't be outlawed. Should exist. And should exist. And so, how do you know exactly which one it is? How do you know which lenders have good practices and bad practices? It's just very tough for me to make that decision and for me to pick the ones that I believe are good mm. would be too much work for the Well, you probably team. wouldn't compete very well if you only did that, too. If you had a payday lender that was real persnickety about whether they'd give you money or not, yeah. I'd probably just go to the guy down the street that gives everybody a loan. Well, and who's to say? And well, frankly, he could probably offer me a better rate because more of his guys are in default for their lifetime and yeah. pay him back. So if I'm, you know, responsible, I'll actually get a good discount subsidized by them. Yeah, I, I'm saying I actually think you're, you have a more advanced argument here, but I think mostly uh, the case it's a very condescending argument, usually, to say that payday lending is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Because what you're saying is that the con that you know better than the consumer, mm -hmm. right? And that we can be the sort of arbiter of consumer choices and well, say what's well, good or bad because you're making a poor decision. No, well, we're, we're in a very desperate situation. And I maybe, want them... Maybe. Th their desperation, they certainly feel... Well, there could be several reasons to take out a payday loan, I would imagine. Abject desperation. Maybe your kid just got hit by a car and you, who, yeah. who knows, whatever. Uh, I want to get a bottle of alcohol. Uh, and I happen to spend all my previous paycheck on booze. And so, you know, mm -hmm. that feels really desperate to me, the, the borrower, at the time. Others might not say that, in their opinion, it was as desperate. Um, and then, you know, situations where people have... No desperate need in either direction, but they're just ignorant enough about, uh, let's say, their own future behavior. Mm -hmm. For example, subscription businesses prey upon this. Gym subscriptions. How do gyms operate? Well, they get you to sign up for a long-term membership. And you think, ah, I'm going to be so diligent and come out and work out every day. So this is a great value for money. And then, of course, you don't because you're really bad at predicting your own behavior. And the gym knows that. And knows you don't know that and is specifically being predatory on this yeah. information asymmetry. Well, we've discussed that I try to run as, as low of a, a subscription life as possible because I know that I don't use these things. Yeah. And it annoys me that I pay for them when yeah. I don't use them. But 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 I think that the, there's a there's a very interesting general philosophical point that's like at the the, the place between authoritarianism, authoritarianism and libertarianism. Mm -hmm. I doubt that any of us falls squarely on either of those uh, axes or on the, either of those extremes mm -hmm. um, of saying the customer is always right and that you know is best. I'm probably for... closer to that extreme, but yeah. Well, but but okay. <laughs> even even if if you go to that extreme, it breaks down. I would argue. Let's say okay, the payday lending case. Okay. And and or let's take it further to something that's highly regulated, like lotteries. Mm -hmm. Okay. Lotteries are not really properly regulated, so <laughs> they just have a, there's a monopoly the by the state on them. So, but but yeah, gambling in general, some percentage of people are going to become degenerate gamblers. Mm -hmm. They're going to spend all their money on stuff, uh, gambling, and always be broke, and maybe have higher rates of all kinds of bad things, antisocial things that are in fact costly to society to deal with. Mm -hmm. And maybe 
us, the taxpayers, can catch a break on our tax bill uh, or spend that money on other things if we don't have to be constantly, you know, dealing with these people's issues because they keep on draining, they're acting in a, in a way that is harmful both to both themselves and to society in general, let's but say. But we're taxing the casino, right? So, you know, in, in, well, in theory, well, sin right? taxes are a big thing. They're actually yeah. quite popular. Yep. You know, you could say with cigarettes, there's the same thing. You uh, have increased healthcare expenditure to Medicaid or whatever else from all the people who smoke and thus have expensive late in life uh, issues that related to the smoking that they had. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you tax the cigarette consumption, then, you know, presumably mm -hmm. you're offsetting that and it should be okay. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one way to deal with it, though there are some things that are hard to tax. Uh, there are some things, I mean... We're getting the sin tax even, right? You're, you're taxing the profits of the casino, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, whatever that person is losing, right, mm -hmm. presumably flows upstream to the profits of the casino, right? Mm -hmm. And then those are taxed. And then those taxes can be used to sort of uh, for regenerative <laughs> practices for, you know, for rehabilitation well, well, rather. Well, but, you know. but the issue, well, yeah, these, these things tend to be possible to do. Yeah. Though I would argue that at least, for example, when I, when I lived in China, one of the things I observed that, is that a lot of the things, I'm a very libertarian leaning person, a lot of the things that I take for granted that are sort of regulated away in the U.S. are not regulated away in China and lead to a lot of generally like negative externalities. The most obvious one is like pollution. Uh, the fact that there's way more air pollution there has really significant health outcomes and just quality of life outcomes on everyone in China. Select people profit from that pollution. It's not everybody. It's not everybody equally. Though the government can tax it to some degree, they tend not to. It tends to be hard to balance things out so that your country can be competitive economically while taxing away maximally the negative externalities or whatever. Um, it, there's, there's, there's difficulties in these systems that like just lead to, to emergent outcomes that make even the most libertarian person feel like sure. their liberty is being infringed upon, let's say, sure. feel like they're being charged. Sure. Um, anyway, yeah. but, 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 in the payday lending situation, I mean, yeah, why don't you believe, Carrie, that uh, pay, do, do you think, I don't know what you believe on this, do you think payday loans should be taxed heavily and that taxing should be used on education to teach people that, hey, payday loans are a bad idea, bro, don't do it? So I actually don't even think the returns are that high. Yeah. I think if you're an investor and you buy a portfolio of payday loans, yeah. over time, you're not going to make any more or maybe that much more money than if you bought kind of... Yep. Mid prime consumer loans, which mid prime to me means something in the like thirty percent APR range to forty five. That's a little surprising to me, if only because I'd imagine there's at least a handful of people like you who don't like to invest in those types of businesses. Market, so, so it should so mean that their capital though. is more expensive. So markets end up being pretty efficient, and yeah. you know I know you know it was interesting because someone showed me this really interesting payday lending deal a few years ago, mm. and when I looked at the cash flows after tax, mm. they were worse mm. than the mid-prime. Mm. They only were better if you uh, didn't take taxes into account. Mm. And so for that, there is a... Are they are they taxed more heavily in some no, way? No, but interest is taxed uh, very heavily. And so in the U.S., yes, let's just say... You don't recover your principal because a lot of people aren't default. paying you. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's just say you is, have... Is it a bit like a pyramid scheme almost where you're like, I don't refinancing know... Refinancing... 
people's people loans in, constantly and they never actually yes. pay it all back but you're sort of marking yeah. it you as end up value getting, yeah and, so yeah. you end up not getting a lot of your principal back and you make up for it with a lot of interest right which is taxed really heavily mm-hmm. yeah so to explain like how loans work in the u.s yeah if you have a 15 percent uh interest rate on a loan mm-hmm. and you live in a state that let's just say gets you to a 50 percent tax rate all mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. you're gonna get seven and a half percent well if losses are also seven and a half percent as a U.S. taxpayer, you make no money. Mm-hmm. All you have at the end of the day is a capital loss. Mm. And a capital loss doesn't actually, you can't like, you can't make dollars the capital loss. You have to then find another capital gain mm-hmm. and then offset them to actually make your return. Mm. And so loans that have high losses and higher interest rates mm. end up being much worse from a tax perspective. And so an offshore investor would make more money, somebody who doesn't pay U.S. taxes. and Maybe that's who's investing and in maybe these that's businesses. who's investing in it. Yeah. And an onshore taxpayer, a U.S. taxpayer, hmm. would do, actually do a lot better investing in a mid or maybe even a prime loan where the principal gets repaid because the principal loss uh, you know, doesn't help them from a tax. So there you go. Free investing tip from Kerry Finley. If you are an offshore investor in America, invest in payday loan businesses for great returns. I did not say that. Uh, I definitely did not the, say the that. The point is, I, I mean, uh, markets returns. are, especially when you're selling a commodity like money, right? Yeah. Uh, markets are, are extremely efficient, right? And so, yeah. um, and, and so I guess the, the conscientious objector group is just not big enough to really move the, yeah. the price so, of capital. So I, I, I watched this, like, uh, this, this YouTube video on payday lending uh, mm. some years ago um, because I was curious about sort of the mechanism by which, you know, sort of you, you generate a profit as a, as a payday lender because you're losing too much principal. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, uh, of course, the, the, the person is filming. Is not Dog the Bounty Hunter? Uh, right no, was, was saying, look, if you compound this capital, you're going to make, you know, 4,000% a year. Look how much these payday lenders are making. Mm-hmm. And you just do the math, you pull out a calculator, and that person should be a billionaire in, you know, two to three years, yeah. you know? And so what they don't understand, people don't understand um, how, how efficient markets are. And that's a big problem with this sort of anti-capitalist movement, right? Mm-hmm. Is that you see a lot of people who are uh, disparaging those who are making money because they don't really understand the risk category and they don't understand how much risk you're taking for sure and and the real outcome of those investments right Mm -hmm. which is which is the problem i mean we live in such a beautiful time where it's so hard to find some angle like you know opening a payday lending shop or whatever and actually disproportionately profit from it because markets are so efficient because everything that's demanded is done so well Yes, that's that's a really great great feature. My opinion to make money these days is to find a set of assumptions that people are widely held Mm -hmm. and kind of poke holes in them and challenge them. And, you know, I think we've all talked about this where, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at what everybody assumes, you know, a lot of times if you take what happened in the last three years and apply Mm -hmm. it to the next three years, Mm -hmm. you can find people's kind of errors in their assumption because, Nothing's going to be like it was in the past, and a lot of investors end up being relatively lazy, and so they don't end up. It, it, that. it costs things. It's hard to move these complex machines that work mm-hmm. our economy and shift them to new data that comes mm-hmm. in and everything else. So, 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 what are some of the perhaps assumptions that you think have been sort of incorrectly, uh, you know, uh, agreed upon? I mean, I can tell you, you know, there's this one uh, startup that I think is very interesting, and they are uh, buying homes with call it a potential owner, in a high cap rate market. So you think about like Cleveland or Columbus, Ohio. In the U.S., Ohio, okay, the US. Mm-hmm. Cleveland or Columbus, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the cap rates there are about 8 9%. 
and they work with someone who wants to buy a home, who has plenty of income but no assets, mm. and they let them put 2% down mm. instead of 20 mm. The company owns the home, mm. and every month when they pay their 8 to 9% cap rate rent, mm. they pay a little extra, mm. and every month they buy shares in the home. Mm. And because of the ownership structure, they can't get a mortgage. Mm. And so when they first started buying these homes, it, you know, everyone, or not everyone, the kind of generic lenders wouldn't lend them money. Mm -hmm. So I lend so them money. So you have fractionalized home ownership, essentially. So, you know, I can't, I, I can't afford a home, but I'd like to build some equity in right. my home. Mm -hmm. So um, I just pay basically rent plus some sort of amortization, right? Yeah. Um, and then and I move month. out of the home five years from now, right? And then somebody well, else. No, no, the goal with this is that actually own the home. after two to three years, yeah. you've bought enough of the home that you then, and you hopefully still have the same income you did, if not maybe a little more because of because uh, of income growth, but you then go out and get a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac mortgage, um, and you own 100% of the home because you've now bought shares from it every month, you now have built- You have enough equity, for a, a down payment, so to speak. The equivalent of the down payment, but you've paid that down payment over time. Mm. And so it really, but because of that ownership structure, mm -hmm. they can't get a mortgage. And so I lent the money at what I think was three times the normal rate because I wouldn't say people were scared of the ownership structure, but people's assumptions about things that could go wrong with that ownership structure were, uh, in my opinion, overblown. And so you and lent the company money. No, I lent money against the houses. Right, exactly. Well, sure. But it was the company that is originally buying the house. Yes. And then the consumer is then, is then paying down. Yep. Um, their down payment over time. Mm -hmm. And so the company is essentially financing early on the down payment. And this, yes. how many homes exist with this type of ownership structure? I mean, know? to my understanding at this point, they've raised hundreds of millions. Yeah. Um, there are a handful of companies trying to do this, all mm. in different ways, shapes, and forms. Mm. One's trying to do it as an employee benefit. Mm. So, you know, the big corporation that they work for, mm. that the employee works for, uh, offers this business, this subsidization, and they do it through the employees. So just think about like a huge company like Google. Mm. Obviously, they have a huge campus in Mountain View. It's a very expensive area. Mm. And so you can work towards buying a home with this startup mm. and you buy shares every month. Maybe Google helps them pay for it. Maybe they subsidize some of the costs. I don't know exactly how it works. Is there, is there, because the first thing that my mind jumps to when thinking about this is if there is a decent market for this or a decent number of people who like this structure, you know, why didn't exist why didn't it exist before? It's not like the math is brand new or something around how you could do this. There's always been rent to own. Yeah. Um there ha it's been, you know, these these companies used to be very local. Mm. Um they really during every downturn seem to go out of business. Um but it's never been done, you know, quite as let's call it like efficiently as it is now and i think technology and uh and kind of the internet and the ability for people to advertise and get find the right customers kind of like let's call it the marketplace effect of the internet mm. has created kind of a matching system for people who have a need and people who want to provide for that need mm -hmm. do you think that the so when you look back to the history of things like health insurance provided by companies mm -hmm. Uh, that very directly related to certain really heavy changes in the tax code that incentivized uh, managers, uh, directors, whatever, high-level uh, executives at companies 
to get paid highly uh, in a highly perk-based way as opposed to salary-based way. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that there are any changes that, you know, in that regard or, or relating to that that have enabled this sort of meta to emerge? Or, or, or I don't think there's like, there haven't been any big tax changes that have made companies more eager to get perks, but I definitely noticed a lot of Silicon Valley companies, like Google at least, having very perk-heavy comp structures compared to what what's Well, I think people actually really overvalue perks. I mean, I know how much people, how much time just my friends talk about, you know, the free food at their offices. And yeah. Like, I, you know, I want to be like friends highly, with people yeah. who have great cafeterias in their offices. It's but, like highly amenitized buildings, right? Yeah. So, and, and real estate developers know this very well, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's a certain optimal square footage yeah. that you have to dedicate to amenities, even yeah. though nobody categorically, uses nobody uses amenities, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but it allows you to charge quite a substantial. Well, premium very in interestingly, in Luke's building, people use the amenities. It's a very amenity-heavy building. Yeah, and, and, and they're they're always in use. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's, it's if everybody were using them, right? And no, everybody, no, right, right. It would be, by it would be, by everyone using them, we mean yeah. exactly the right number that they built them for. Yeah, precisely. because they're not overcrowded. They're yeah. definitely like just about right yep. used. So they yep. definitely ran these numbers and had this operational experience to know mm-hmm. how many amenities to build mm-hmm. and did a good mm-hmm. job of it. The, the, I mean, he has a fire pit on his roof, and he also has a barbecue on his roof. And I have another friend that lives in his building who gave me this tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll never forget, I saw it, and I was like, well, that's never going to get used. Mm-hmm. And then one Sunday, he and I were, like, walking around, and it was completely used. And I was like, wow. Yeah. This is just, I mean. No, it's, it's yeah. virtually it like, full utilization all the time. Yeah. It's kind of, it's it's like, it feels almost perfect. Um yeah. But the, the that's the that's the perk thing, right? Well, um, well, it, which I don't know how we got on this digression, the perk thing, but <laughs> yeah, it, well, it, I don't know. I was just trying to fish for reasons why markets like this might emerge. There's not any reason because you mentioned Google as being, you know, or companies yeah. in general being being the customers for providing these kinds of things as perks to employees. Oh, I see, I see. Yes. Uh, so I was just thinking along that angle of well, anything I think changed that, in that. You know, in like at least in this situation, mm. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have just been so dominant in the market for so long mm. that every bank conforms to what exactly Fannie and Freddie want to uh, want to originate. Mm. And so then everything else just becomes so expensive because obviously Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, their cost of capital is distorted by the government cost of capital mm-hmm. because they are considered, um, I mean, now they are conservators. Uh, I think they're still conservative, mm-hmm. sort of conservators, but of the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so anybody else can't compete. And mm-hmm. so these companies, in theory, would have been so expensive for someone to, uh, you know, to to do this product. Mm-hmm. But they're looking at it versus a rental now. And so they're already in high cap rate areas, meaning that the rent is very high as a percentage of the uh, of the home value. Mm. Where in San Francisco, I think the cap rates are around 3% mm. for a single family home. In uh, Columbus, Ohio, they're, I think they're around 9 mm. And so they're starting there. And so the difference in adding a little bit more rent to gain more ownership of your home mm. is a much smaller percentage of your monthly payment when you think about it that it's already a very high cap rate yeah. environment. Mm. Proportionally. Yep. Mm. Yep. So another question is how do you sniff out opportunities like this how could you tell that people were willing did you just take a guess and say i'm going to dig into this or did you you know just have data points come across your desk where you saw hey look this guy's willing to pay triple the price for uh this kind of structure i look at it differently because he yeah i'm making a 70 ltv loan against a portfolio of homes that was it 
but but how did you but how did how did these opportunities come to you i mean or like how did you get involved in this kind of like i mean with this exact situation yeah um uh you know a vc had invested had introduced me Hmm. to um a big fintech executive he Mm -hmm. also has a family office slash incubator that he runs out of the same building Mm -hmm. and this was one of the companies in the incubator and he asked me to help them Mm. and so i did and you know, I can help them with advice. I can help them with capital markets. I can help them with structuring. I can help them with reading their documents. But then mm. I also can, you know, be there and be helpful to provide capital mm. when I see an interesting investment and a good opportunity. How did you know what to charge for the capital? Um, I don't. I You just kind of guess and I see just, if they take it? I just guessed at what they, you know, based on their financials, based on how much money they're making, based mm. on the cash they have on their balance sheet, mm-hmm. what they can bear to pay. Mm-hmm. And, we and you knew there wasn't really any competition or yeah. other people providing this kind of but thing. But now there yeah. is. And now yeah. there's a huge sovereign wealth fund that gave them a line in the many hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. because it showed that, oh, wait, this works. Mm. And so, you know, I always say that it's, you know, being on the edge of bankability. Mm-hmm. And this is a completely bankable asset. Every bank in America would lend this. What's that mean exactly, bankable? So if you, like, my test for it is, would a top 10 bank in the U.S. Mm. Uh, make this loan? Okay. And then why wouldn't they? Yeah. And so in this case, is there it a good was, reason or a bad reason, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. In this case, every bank in America would make a 70 LTV loan to any of us hmm. on uh, to buy a home. Mm-hmm. Um, 70 LTV define, means, yeah, sorry, yeah. 70% loan to value. So Got on a $100,000 house, mm-hmm. a $70,000 loan. Got it. And so any bank would do that. Mm-hmm. Well, so in this case, the only reason they wouldn't is because the ownership structure of the home mm-hmm. was complicated and new. Mm-hmm. And so to me, what's the worst case? This homeowner or potential homeowner of the future mm-hmm. doesn't want the home anymore? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll find someone else. And is the next person going to pay 30% less rent? I mean, no, these are like, you know, definitely not the top five cities by population in America, mm-hmm. but they are, you know, good cities with jobs mm-hmm. and there's no urban blight like there was in, you know, Detroit many years ago. Mm-hmm. And so you have a good situation where if they leave, there will be somebody else. And mm-hmm. what happens in the worst case, you mm-hmm. can't find someone else who wants to buy it. Mm-hmm. You find a renter. Mm-hmm. We know what the rental market looks like mm-hmm. and you can sell it to a single family REIT where these REITs buy single family homes and rent them out mm-hmm. and they have a cap rate, uh, mm-hmm desire that's lower than nine percent yeah so she's i guess ultimately your point is you'd prefer to take some sort of liquidity risk than than principal impairment risk Mm -hmm. right worst case scenario you might have some issues um with the current renter right um or the current sort of quasi buyer right Mm -hmm. but ultimately unless you lose more than 30 percent on that home you're not going to lose money (laughs) and so in bad times you know and, and i think these the assumption you're making saying that you need to find sort of uh, broken assumptions in order to make money, I think is, is really true. Mm-hmm. And we, I'm in a very similar business to her, right? And uh, there's certain proprietary data sets that you can generate as well. Like people oftentimes would say, well, lending money to Mexican consumers is really risky business. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a binary way, they're just sort of not uh, uninterested in the category, regardless of what return, right, you could generate because they just consider it a very volatile, risky asset class. Mm-hmm. When the opposite is is actually the case. They're very high interest rates and very low default rates, actually. <laughs> so where do you think that assumption comes from? There must be some experience of riskiness in the market that has led people to have that you know, feeling, and maybe they're overgeneralizing it. I, I think almost the assumption comes from a pretty simple fact, which is the fact that interest rates are really high. 
And if nobody's really capitalizing on the opportunity, people say, well, why is nobody capitalizing on the opportunity? Mm -hmm. It must mean there's something wrong without further investigating. Ah, that seems that seems we're just talking about how efficient markets are. That seems like uh, so. The second you get out of the U.S., yeah, things I mean, change. Things are not efficient just anymore. Just think about the <laughs> just yes, think about seriously. the amount of extra work you have to do. You yeah. have to find a mortgage servicer in Mexico or yeah. a consumer loan servicer. You have to find a lawyer. Yeah, you have to find a lawyer who understands Mexican law. You have to find a lawyer who understands Cayman law. If you have a Cayman fund, a yeah. U.S. law. If you have a U.S. fund, yeah, just the complication layer. People, Makes I it find expensive to well, I find that paid people, a lot to do work. Right, yeah. so that's where the inefficiencies come in. The ROI on your time might be fairly low, but the investment <laughs> is is typically, uh, you know, Very there's good. there's more inefficiencies available. Yeah, like I always joke that I could do a deal, and this is not anything having to do with uh, with Latin America, but mm. I could do a deal in the ten to twenty million dollar range, mm. and I could probably get an interest rate of fifty percent, sixty percent higher mm. than if that deal was fifty to one hundred million, mm-hmm. and it's just because there are all these mega funds Mm. and when you go to you know your boss and you say i have this really great deal and he says that's awesome Mm. how big is it Mm. and you say 20 million and he you know gets out his calculator and he does 20 million over a 20 billion dollar fund and it's that doesn't move the needle needle and it says okay well what do we have to do to get that to be a 200 million dollar investment because that's one percent of the fund Mm -hmm. and so it's you know do we want to have call it 100, 200 million dollar investments, or you know, ten times that mm. for a 20 million dollar investment. Mm. It just gets to this state where the amount of work to put the dollars at work to make money on them becomes too high, mm-hmm. and so a lot of people drop out. Mm-hmm. And when people drop out, markets become less efficient. Mm. So you might argue that there's some mismatch between the skill set needed to and the skill set and willingness to work, let's say, needed to make this happen, mm-hmm. and that people focused on that given market. Right. Yeah. And during the mortgage crisis, this was one of my you know kind of favorite trades, mm. was that if there was a $100 million block of a bond mm. that was out for sale, mm. probably 50 people bid on it. Mm. But if you bought that $100 million, sometimes you could make it $200 million by adding like 500 grand here, a million here. And sometimes they traded 10 to 20 points cheaper. And that could be as much as 30 to 40% depending on the dollar price mm. because nobody wanted to do the same amount of work to buy a million bonds as mm. they did to buy 100 million bonds. Mm. And it was just a time allocation and work issue. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're a competent person, suppose, right, in efficient markets, why would you be managing small pools of capital, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, because you're just taking less dollars out of the market, right? Yeah, yeah. And, in, in yeah, you're... There's this issue of, of much money to be made in managing large pools yeah. of capital, less money to be made for most people at most times mm-hmm. managing small pools. And they need specific yeah. set of circumstances for it to be financially mm-hmm. worthwhile to them. And, and that, that that's a, a, a less common group or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And to go back to my previous point, one thing, when I said proprietary data sets, mm-hmm. oftentimes you have to build these data sets, right? So like the, um, the markets are incredibly opaque, mm-hmm. right? Um, like in, in Mexican consumer debt, right? Mm. Like you're not going to be able to search online <laughs> the sort of uh, the default rates on certain types of sub, you know, subprime consumer do you, loans. Do you have to speak Spanish fluently? Um, well, I've gotten around so far, but um, <laughs> but but you build these data sets and you can find these data sets, and that takes a lot of work in yeah. order to understand kind of how these things perform through bad times as well, right? And yeah. so if you're just a casual, you know, uh, investor looking at this market, you're, mm. you're not really going to have a robust understanding of how these things perform, right? Mm. So, 
Um, but I agree, it's it's an incorrect assumption. It, it, it actually is because otherwise there would be a lot more people mm -hmm. who are participating. And mm -hmm. so that's the only way you can make money right now. I agree. <laughs> it's too hard otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so maybe we should to to go back to Carrie uh, and her story, life story a little bit here. We, we weren't um, at third point yet. We never yeah, really we didn't get to third, third point. point yet. So well, it sounds like you're going to have to invite me back a second time. Are we, are we, how are we doing on time here? We still got, we still got plenty of time. Uh, yeah, the, uh, we still got Tom Carey. Yeah. You're not, you're not getting off the hook this easily. <laughs> um, so yeah, why don't you, why don't you, uh, but by the way, we'll definitely invite you back a second time. You're always welcome on the Orange Man Bad podcast. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, why don't you tell us about how you, you know, progressed in your career mm. after, uh, um, your first, that was your first hedge fund yes. job. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, DB's Warren was mm -hmm. having issues with the crisis, issues with these, uh, this plane. Mm -hmm. And the fund started to not look like it was going to make it. Mm -hmm. My bosses started looking for a place for the whole team. Mm -hmm. uh, we tried out some things. It didn't work. And we kind of ended up splitting up. And I think the two main guys stayed together. I think people joined them and left over time. But um, I ended up getting an offer to work at a hedge fund in New York called Third Point. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, it was... Why, why are you smiling now as you're saying this, Carrie? Because I remember back to when Dan gave me the offer. And yeah. uh, he told me that there were no guarantees in this world. And he was not going to be making me a guarantee. Hmm. And he would pay me a very meager salary. And I would get health insurance and vision and dental. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I shrugged my shoulders and said, okay, I guess we're going to do this. Hmm. And I, you know, what less people know is that I went home and cried. Because I was like, oh my God, I actually have to do this. And I had a why, bunch of... Why were you so excited, though? Because maybe our audience doesn't know much or about terrified third point. Well. Or... Terrified. Yeah, terrified. I mean, I was really young. It's... I was 25 years old. Um, that's, a, that's a quite significant detail. I had never managed money on my own before. Mm -hmm. I always had the ability to kind of show my ideas to my bosses who made the final decision. Mm -hmm. And I was not qualified to manage money on my own. And well, Clearly somebody thought otherwise. They yes. You. Yeah. But I had all these other offers to be like the number two person on this desk, the number mm -hmm. three person on this desk. And like that was much more like appropriate for my uh, experience level. Mm -hmm. But for some odd reason, Dan believed in me. And, uh, and you know, I always think it's because I was able to explain things to him in a very uh, kind of in a way that didn't use acronyms and made sense and was very logical, but I really don't know why. And, um, it did was, you, did, what was the, the process like of, of interviewing for and getting this job? Was it like a long term? you got to know Dan over a period of time or you just like sat down for an hour long interview and he's like, you're hired. Or what, no, what I think like? I went back to the office like 12 to 18 times. Wow. I can't remember. Um, I think, I think our audience would be very curious in what like yeah. the interview process looks like for these sorts for, of roles. For these types of, I met yeah. everybody at that firm. I okay. mean, first I met this guy named Howard Shanker. I was introduced to him hmm. through uh, an ex-colleague of mine from Morgan Stanley. And Would you say, by the way, that Third Point at this time had like a really outsized reputation? Way outsized for the assets it managed. So. Okay. Dan, uh, you know, for the, for the size of for the their, size of the yeah, fund, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Dan used to write these very aggressive letters. Mm -hmm. He had this like nickname, the poison pen in the hedge fund community. Mm -hmm. And so he was always much more well known than his assets under management or the mm -hmm. amount he managed would, uh, would a bit of a celebrity, yeah. celebrity fund manager. Yeah. yeah. But he ended up growing into it. I mean, mm -hmm. I think at the peak third point had $20 billion. Mm -hmm. When I joined, I think it had $1.8 billion mm -hmm. and it just come off a terrible 08. And Dan was like, you know, had a horrible year, was relatively 
beaten down and like ready to like rebuild. Do you think he thought that you might know a little bit about like this whole, you know, the stuff that had happened that had made 08 so bad for so many people and that that contributed all to his thoughts? So yeah, but there were 40 people yeah. um, who came in with structured products expertise, hmm. with assets expertise, hmm. with mortgage expertise and interviewed for this role. Hmm. And some of them were managing directors from Goldman Sachs hmm. and some of them were managing directors from Deutsche Bank. Hmm. And I was like this kid. Hmm. And I mean, I would like was so unqualified. Hmm. It was uh, it's like still like very funny to me when I think about it. Hmm. Um, and I obviously did well with the opportunity. I ended up making the firm billions of dollars over eight years and, uh, you know, managed a book and became a partner there. And the book was what I think does it mean to be, manage a book. By sorry, the way. to manage a portfolio of assets. Got it. Got it. And so you I started think, off managing a portfolio already. Yes. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, Dan, I think the first he said, I think he said it was going to be $200 million total hmm. and it was going to be, let's invest a hundred million dollars. We'll see how it does. And if it hmm. goes well, we'll invest the second hundred. Hmm. And I mean, I had a thesis that there were these bonds called alt a securities. And basically the way I would explain it is that you have a hundred thousand dollar house hmm. and then there's a $70,000 loan on it back to that 70 LTV. Hmm. And then that loan is thrown in a trust and split into a bond called the A bond, mm -hmm. which is the top 63,000 and the B bond, which is the top 7,000. And that's a 90-10 split. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to buy that A bond at 40 cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about... And, and let's say the house, just for the audience's sake, right? Let's say the house were to sell for, you know, $60,000. Where would that 60... Who would be made whole on the 60,000, right? Well, the A bond that yep. was worth $63,000 yep. would get $60,000 back. Exactly. And that B bond would take 100% loss. My point was you're partitioning basically uh, an existing sort of senior security, right? And partitioning it into, into a senior and a junior security, right? Okay. Yep. So you're taking the loan and partitioning it into two yes. securities. Yeah. Yes. And so then I bought that at 40 cents on the dollar. Hmm. So that's 6.3, 63% times mm -hmm. four, mm -hmm. which gets us to, you know, call it around 25. Mm -hmm. So I'm now buying this bond that owns many of those houses, mm. all with a similar characteristic profile, mm. at a 25% LTV. And so what I said to Dan is if housing goes down by 70% or more, we're going to lose a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But if it doesn't, we're going to make a lot of money. Mm. And that was my entire thesis. And he agreed with me. And we felt that it was a good place in the capital structure to be a good you know, set of bonds to own. Mm. We bought 100 million of them. And then we bought another 100 million of them. And then the market caught on that, like, we were right. Mm. And then they started to appreciate considerably. And that obviously gave me the kind of street cred with Dan mm. to transition into other assets. And so then we bought commercial mortgage-backed securities. We bought CDOs, the things I started with in 2005. And mm -hmm. then we, you know, continued to kind of go around the world looking for opportunities. We did the same thing in Europe. We started uh, a Mexican mortgage REIT with some other funds, mm. and we really just continued to look for assets that were mispriced throughout the globe, and it was a, it was a really fun eight years. So why, why were markets so wrong, do you think, originally? I right? think because people look at what happened in the, in the recent past mm -hmm. and, uh, and apply it to the future, mm -hmm. and that's obviously the best way to, um, to figure out what your assumptions are going to be, but the past never looks like the future. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting because... Luke and I have been talking a lot about markets, and one of the things I keep mentioning is that, like, when you see something cause another thing, 
you have to look as if it caused it or just everyone had those two positions on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this was a situation. That's a good way of saying it. Yep. Yeah. This was mm-hmm. a situation where everyone owned these bonds. They, a lot of times, the team that owned them was being fired because most of these people bought these at 100 cents on the dollar. They now trade at 40 cents on the dollar. It's a 60% loss. Mm-hmm. And so when the team, when the new team comes in, they want the bonds to be as bad as possible mm-hmm. so that they can then show their boss that they know how to make money. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with these very kind of conservative assumptions. Mm-hmm. And then if they say, well, our bond is worth 25, mm-hmm. they have to bid 25 when they see another bond. And then someone says, oh, my God, the biggest person in the market bid 25. Why am I bidding 35? And then bids collapse. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times it's herd mentality. It's fear. It's well, if I can't lose money, mm. uh, then I've bought a good bond. Well, if you can't lose money, you probably also can't make money. Mm. And so people just getting nervous, getting fearful. They want to be able to say to their boss, I know I got it wrong the last 10 times, but this 11th time, I can't possibly be wrong. Mm. And, you know, that's, I think, what created a lot of the inefficiency. Mm-hmm. And then there were, you know, everyone was focused on America. Well, no one was looking at Europe. Why not? Who knows? But so they would then take a bond that looked the same here as it looked there and bid it to the same price. Well, mm-hmm. the bond there might have had different characteristics. They might have had different foreclosure rules. There might have been other things going on that nobody considered. And mm-hmm. so I literally had someone say to me once. Because maybe the people who are trading these things in general were not having the time or inclination to investigate the very specific markets or regulations or whatever else. I had someone say to me once. Because it became a hot commodity area in general? Or did you think that, was there a big increase in this asset's transaction volume following the crisis? Yeah, there was. But it also went from people who bought the assets based on ratings Mm. to people who bought the assets based on cash flows. Right. And I was a cash flow buyer, not a ratings buyer. Yeah. And so it just went from one group of people to another. And a lot of times, look, if you're buying a bond because you're buying have a rating, mm. but you know you have regulations that make you only buy with ratings, mm. then you can't be the cash flow buyer. And mm. so it's not a, it's not stupidity. It's not you know sometimes it's laziness, but it really is a lot of the time just constraints you have because of the type of money you have or the funding source you have. Mm-hmm. And I actually had someone say to me at one point, why would I buy uh, why would I buy a Spanish bond with twenty percent credit enhancement? when I can buy a U.S. bond with 20% credit enhancement. Credit enhancement is the amount of bonds below you in the structure. Okay. And that means with less privilege in the event of the bond defaulting or whatever like this, they get their money out last. Yeah. You have a senior claim, yes. right? And and yes. so the, the enhancements are yeah. beneath you, right? But yes. there's so much more uncertainty in mm. uh, in Spain. Mm. You know, there's there could be this political risk. Here we have this stable political environment. Mm. Um, I don't want the political risk with Spain. Well, what they didn't mm. realize is that the way Spanish bonds, or the way collateral was counted in Spanish bonds was completely different. Hmm. And so 20% enhancement in Spain could have been 30, depending on how the collateral was counted, could have been 40. Hmm. And you really got a better bond for the same or sometimes a much cheaper price. Hmm. And people just were, I think, in many cases, too lazy to read the prospectus to understand that. Hmm. And they just looked at it the same as the way it was here. Hmm. And it was interesting to point. There's a sort of paradigm shift between relying on ratings because ratings were like sacrosanct mm-hmm. during a, 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 a you know prolonged period of times. Mm-hmm. Saying, well, how do we actually instead of doing the the lazy work of looking at a, a at a letter, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> decide what this thing is worth, right? And I think like Carrie's original example of 
something, you know, our, our housing value is really going to collapse by 70%, right? <laughs> Probably fairly unlikely, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what else is going on? Um, why, why is it so cheap, you know? Um, so it's, it's well, in my favorite example, and I've, I've told yeah. you both this, is the subprime mortgage bonds, where everyone looked at the default rate that had happened over the past three years and applied them to the next three years. An escalation, an increase, obviously, right? It, they wouldn't have just apply the, the exact same default rates. Well, no, they applied, like, the same CDR. And okay, so, sure. which co CDR is constant default rate. It's an annual number turned into a monthly number and then any loans. Hmm. And, you know, if you have 10% of the pool defaulting every year hmm. and nobody's prepaying, your defaults are going to be 90 plus percent. Hmm. And it again goes back to what I was saying where if 90%, if I think that 90% of the pool defaults and I can still get an 8% yield, hmm. okay, 90%, it can't get much worse. Mm -hmm. And so you're in a situation where you can say to your boss, I can't lose money on this. Because, but, you know, what if it was 85% that defaulted? What if it was 80? What if it was 75? And when you started to look at the convexity of different scenarios and the convexity that maybe, you know, 90% was wrong, yeah. you started to have a huge escalation in recoveries and prices. Mm -hmm. And that was the way that, like, I made a lot of money for Third Point was by just saying, okay, what if these people are wrong? And I'll never forget the broker dealers, you know, in between me and the other customers would call me and say, you know, this guy believes you're screwing up the market. He doesn't think you know what you're doing. He thinks you're going to blow up your firm. Mm. You better be careful, young lady. And I would say things like, okay. And honestly, <laughs> when someone came to come work for me, yeah. um, she told me that everybody on her desk at her previous firm used to joke about how I was going to uh, blow up third point and blow up in a hedge fund is not a good thing it doesn't mean get large like it does in tech it literally means <laughs> go to zero go to zero yeah and, and the fear associated with going to zero is what prevents a lot of people because at her point the cdrs and i think part of the trade that was really interesting is that defaults happen along a certain cadence mm -hmm. right you have like three-year mortgages right mm -hmm. uh you know that or mortgages are obviously much longer than that but just for the sake of example yeah defaults happen typically earlier on mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and then they tend to trail off right yeah. so assuming a constant cdr right over the life of a given cohort it's right a false assumption. E exactly yeah. yeah but i think people really believed well we, what if all these loans were made fraudulently and fraudulently yeah. not you know what we we're talking about In earlier the truest but, sense. Yeah, yeah yeah but like a little bit of a lie on income a little bit of a lie on desire to live there a little mm -hmm. bit of a you know, overinflation of assumptions. And mm. so maybe nobody in these pools wants these homes. Mm. But, you know, someone who made the last 36 payments will probably make their 37th. Mm. Even more likely they'll make their 38th. Yeah, and that math was unlikely to change. That, that math, that psychology, mm -hmm. the, the, mm -hmm. the empirical facts was not changing, was not likely to change. Were you, I mean, did you have concern that maybe that suddenly everyone's behavior would change? So in 2011... Mm. Uh, these bonds went down in price significantly. Mm. And uh, yeah, I was very, Question very assumptions a lot. I, I mean, but... But she bought more. I bought more. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, you know, I'll never forget like how scary it was. And mm. I worried every day that uh, Dan was going to fire me and, mm. you know, all that stuff because I was a kid. I didn't know what I was doing. And... Seems like you probably had a pretty good sense of what you were doing. <laughs> I mean, I had a thesis and I yes. followed my thesis, yeah. but you know, you had these like veterans of the industry mm. yelling that I was screwing up the market and didn't know what I was doing and going to blow up third point. Mm. And that was the last thing I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to do things that I thought were like good and sound investments and made sense. And yeah. 
And I ended up, you know, in the most cases being right, but there were some really kind of scary times where I was like, wow, I, I, I'm an idiot. Yeah. Um, Definitionally, you have to feel like an idiot to make money though, right? Because, yeah. um, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a fact that if you do whatever everybody else is doing, right, you probably well, you have to, not you have to be, you have to, you have to be contrarian. You have to feel at least like a disagreeable contrarian. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, but, but not necessarily an idiot. You might have, you know, a sound thesis that you definitely don't know if it's true, but at least you feel yeah. like you, but you have some But people can't strong... think it's very smart, um, and people can't think it's it's the right thing to do, or otherwise you, you couldn't make money, right? Yeah, <laughs> was yeah. That, was... at least not unless you heavily educate them on it or whatever else. Maybe you convince your boss, but it's hard to convince the yeah. whole market. And... Was yeah. episode one uh, based on the Big Five or no? I don't know if we've dug into the Big Five too much. No. Um, it certainly will be big five personality traits is what we're talking about here. Right. Um, it certainly will be a topic that we should discuss at length, uh, on this podcast. It is the, um, the standard that exists, the best, um, you know, academically derived, uh, personality, um, measure that exists. It's been studied a lot. Uh, again, as far as like psychology goes, it is very, uh, high up there on the predictive, um, predictive ability uh, to actually discern real differences in people and how they think and how they feel about different kinds of behavior, just, just what, what we term personality. Um, and uh, one of the traits that we're referring to right here is disagreeableness. Um, and if you look in the dictionary, disagreeableness basically some like comes down to someone who's an asshole, uh, which is not, it's just not the technical sense of the definition at all. Uh, it's in contrast to agreeableness, and it's basically, you know, the degree to which uh, one feels um, inclined to go along with what other people, the general consensus, uh, thinks they should go along with. The degree to which people like to be contrarians or think independently or take the risk of thinking independently, because it usually is a risk, and because very often people make errors in cognition, they, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, usually the crowd is a decent error correcting mechanism, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it falls prey to very consistent biases or or wrong, uh, you know, bad incentives, let's say, that lead to everybody saying things that are not true altogether because they take the least personal risk by doing that. Um, but then they can forget what actually is true. I think you guys should dissect this in episode three because the I first think, time I met Luke, uh, yeah. he called me disagreeable and I Googled it and I was like, oh, she, God. Terry was very upset uh, that I would uh, right. call her disagreeable. But, fact, but I think you were also it's intrigued. It's a huge honor, really, yes. yeah, to yeah. be disagreeable. I, I, <laughs> I personally test in the third percentile for agreeableness yeah. uh, on the big five, so I'm, I'm a big advocate of disagreeableness in general. And, and I think in general... Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's a trait that sometimes gets a bad rap with a lot of people, but is uh, very important for society and is a you know can be a very pro-social trait. Can be a very uh, uh, you know. Anyway, we, we 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 should we should definitely dedicate an episode to going into Absolutely. all this, and we'll have Carrie back to discuss this because we we will. I'm... Well, there's 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 definitely some big issues we wanted to go over with you, Carrie. Yeah. Um, one of which maybe I'll, we, we, we've got, you know, maybe eight minutes or so here to, to dig into quickly and we can, we can spend much more time next time we, we get you over here talking about it. But one of the things that is apparent to me as you describe your career and career history is you have a pretty unique profile. Um, you are someone who 
I would say, seems to have a combination of, you know, a lot of diligence in the work that you do. So you're willing to do a lot of things and just like dig into the weeds of things that maybe more than some people would. You tend to have, a, you know, a lot of comfort with uh, numbers, let's say, and all the math behind calculating these strange bond values and, you know, uh, applying uh, complex intuitions and algorithms to, to evaluate them. And you also have like a general sense for, you know, understanding the risk vectors that exist in more qualitative ways. So you're saying, well, in general, this place is like this, or this place doesn't have this type of risk. So I don't need to worry about that. It's You're not just like someone who's staring at a spreadsheet and deriving everything from that. You're, you know, applying all these things. But then also one of the things that's most outstanding, uh, and, and that by that I mean standing out uh, <laughs> about you, is that you're a woman. Yeah. Which is super, well, why, why don't you tell us how common your gender uh, is in the role, uh, the type of role that you have, have had. Yeah, I uh, mean, I really didn't know any others. Um, yeah. You know, I was replaced, the woman who replaced me and runs a book for me, at third, runs the book that I used to run at Third Point, mm. is a woman. Mm. Um, but I, you know, she, before she worked at Third Point, she worked at a much smaller fund. Mm -hmm. There just weren't any. And it was very interesting to me because when I was, again, right out of college and mm. at Morgan Stanley, mm. our class was 50-50. And 50% men, 50% women. Of the, the associates or, of the or analysts? analysts? Yeah. 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 So associates come out of business school, analysts come out of college. Got it. And, you know, you're told if you go into... Why it, was that, by the way, that it was 50-50? That seems I like have a, a peculiarly yeah. exact... Uh, yeah. I have measure. a feeling yeah. that it was screened for that, yeah. that they wanted a 50-50 ratio. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were enough, call it good or qualified applicants for them to get there. Mm. And well, that's, 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 that's a, an impossible statement. Again, it's well good, good enough that they could do the job. Well, you, you, I think you and I have talked about this before, and you'd argue that there's not a lot of leverage to being the best analyst in the world versus right. being, you know, the hundredth best analyst in the world is pretty similar in terms of your output to the firm. Yeah, but also, you know, and, you know, back to a little bit more gender norms, a lot of mm -hmm. the women were placed into sales roles. Mm -hmm. Sales is a very important uh, aspect of this business. But again, it's probably not like 50-50 exactly the demand for sales roles versus, like 50-50 is too there exact There are more salespeople than there are uh, traders. Then you should think maybe there should be more, more. women in sales well, there, or so there were, analyst positions. Rather. There were yeah. men in sales. Yeah. Um, there were also some you know, women in research, um, mm. as you know, I was. Mm. And so, you know, yes, it was probably manufactured. Mm. Um, I don't know exactly how, mm. but, you know, oh, manufactured by saying we're going to hire the same number of men yeah. and women. <laughs> Go find them. Yeah. Five years later, when yeah. you looked at how many of those 25 men and 25 women were still in the same career path, mm. That was where it really hit me for the first time hmm. that, you know, let's call it when I counted at the time, I remember 70 to 80 percent of the men still being in the field hmm. and, you know, about 10 to 20 percent of the women still being in the field. Hmm. And I don't you know, it was it was the first time that it really hit me. And I remember like I had a tough time with something my first or second year hmm. and I, you know, and I was made fun of. And I remember calling my dad and saying, like, you know, you always told me men and women were equal. And mm -hmm. I like, you know, really blame my dad. for Your that. dad is a very strong leftist, if I'm correct. Yes, yes. my dad is a very strong leftist. Yes. But he always told me and I said to him and he said, and he really said back to me, if I told you you weren't equal, you never would have tried. And 
Seems like a peculiar statement to me. Very peculiar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, I remember. Sort of loss. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the logic the logic doesn't hold there. Why not? Me. Well, if everyone's equal, then why would that make you try harder than if you were a if bit you, better or well, a bit worse? Or if you were told, no yeah. matter how hard you try, yeah. you can never be as good as someone else. You're yeah. never going to try to be as good as someone else. Oh, I see. I see. And so, by him telling me that I was just as good, that I was equal, yeah. He knew that I would do my best to compete. And, you know, obviously he knows I'm a very competitive person. It's not something I really hide. Um, but Wouldn't a better statement, you think, be your gender is not the dominating factor compared to other qualifiers you have for your success in okay, say that to a 12 year old given too. field? But say that to a 12-year-old. Well, as I'd say or, or to Carrie, a 12-year-old. better, here, probably. Here, what I'd say to a 12-year-old is you're a really unique person, Carrie. And I promise you that what your gender is has way less impact than other stuff. Well, there you go. That's probably true and encouraging and motivating. I don't think my dad, it was like a very well thought out statement when he said it. But it it stuck with you nonetheless. It did. Was it it misogynism that weeded out those 80% of females that left the investment field? Or was it the fact that they wanted to leave the investment field? Or, or you're leaving out the most important other or category, which is they weren't as, as good as the elite men in those fields. Yeah, I honestly don't know, and I think it's something we can talk about more. Mm. But I really don't know the answer to that because look, it was a hard place to work. Mm. Um, it was being on a trading floor mm. was a very hard place to work, mm. and there were no senior women, mm. very few. Mm. Um, the ones that were there were uh, not always um, the kindest. To, and to, to, to other young women. Yeah. Specifically to other young women, you'd say? I mean, I don't know. Okay. But in uh, your experience, they weren't the kindest to you. In, the, in my <laughs> experience, they weren't the kindest to me. Yes. And someday, I will come back on this podcast and tell you this thing called the coffee story, which is one Ooh. of the best uh, one of the best stories uh, ever. Well, that, that's, a, that's a great teaser as, yeah. we, uh, as we actually hit time here. Um, I'm excited for the next time you come back on the podcast. I hope it's really soon. Yeah. Uh, And uh, I think we can really dig into the the meat and potatoes of uh, some of these interesting questions around gender and finance uh, on the next episode of Orange Man Bad. Orange Man Bad. And I I think we have to have a part one and part two with Carrie. I think so. I think so. We may. I think think the next episode should probably be with you here, Carrie. I think that. No uh, problem. All right. All right. Well, Excellent. well, thanks well, everyone for joining. Thanks everyone for joining. Thank you, Carrie, so much for your time and and uh, amazing story. Um, and uh, we look forward to uh, to catching up with everybody again on the next episode.